First Corinthians chapter 15, please. First Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start reading this morning in verse number 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Jump down to verse 29. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Well, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for the fact that we gather now around the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us all to see it for what it is. Lord, we don't come to this knowing that it's just some book. Lord, we accept that this is your book. We accept that this is your word. We accept that these are not the words of men, but men only. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We know that all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so, Father, we come to this book today. We come to this passage, these verses, accepting that it is your word. And I pray today that you would speak to us through it. I pray that none of us would hear me. They would only hear you. And I pray, Lord, that you do something great and mighty through this passage. Lord, this is such a key chapter, and I feel my inadequacy as I approach it. And I pray today that you would just fill me with your spirit. Help us, Father, to hear you today and teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to share a list of names with you this morning. And I want you to tell me what this list of names has in common. You'll get it pretty quickly, I think, but let's give it a try. Once you know what it is, just holler it out. What does this list of names have in common? Neil Armstrong, Ernest Borgnine, Ray Bradbury, Don Brinkley, Chuck Brown. Did I hear something? They're all men. <laughs> Dick Clark, Richard Dawson, Phyllis Diller, Robin Gibb, Andy Griffith, Helen Gurley Brown. If you don't get it on this one, I don't know what to tell you. Larry Hagman, Marvin Hamlish, Sherman Hemsley. They're all dead. When did they all die? They all died in 2012. Whitney Houston, Davy Jones, George McGovern, Sun Myung Moon, Joe Paterno, Sally Ride, Vidal Sassoon, Arlen Specter, Donna Summer, Gore Vidal, Mike Wallace, Andy Williamson. We could go on. 
All of those, most of you figured it out pretty soon, are the names of people who died during the past year. Famous people, by somebody's account, whoever came up with that list, uh, died during 2012. You know, the Bible tells me in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this is judgment. And even if we didn't have that scripture, we certainly have the anecdotal evidence all around us, don't we? doesn't surprise us when we come across lists of names like that because we see it every day in our newspapers. People are born and people die every single day. The particular list that I found of folks who died during 2012 had 48 names on it. I, I didn't read all of them to you because I didn't know some of them, but I read most of them. And that was just saying famous people. You know, if we had included people like me and people like you, it would have been thousands of names on that list of people who died during 2012. I like to read the Bible through, and I try to read the Bible through every year. I, I haven't been doing it as much lately because of studying more in depth in certain chapters like what we're doing now. But I try to, and every time I start with the book of Genesis, I go along just fine until I get to chapter 5. And then chapter 5, which is called, in, in some of your Bibles, it may even say it as a heading, it's called the death chapter. Chapter 5 starts off with just the genealogy of Adam, and it says Adam lived for so many years and begat sons and daughters, and he died. Seth lived for so many years, and he begat sons and daughters, and he died. And on and on it goes. It's just like every single verse, every phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Our text for today helps us to deal with that issue, does it not? Because it reminds us. That death, even though it is a universal thing, is not the end. Death, even though it is something that we all think about and concerned about, it's not the end. Job, in the middle of his great trial, which is recorded for us in the book that bears his name, cried out in, in what I think is one of the great verses of the Bible. Job chapter 14, verse 14, he said, If a man die, shall he live again? And is that not the question? Is that not a question? That most ask today. Oh, there are some who will be flippant about those kinds of things and they'll say, oh, that doesn't bother me. I don't think about those things. But in, there's a place inside of you, in the very depths of your soul, where you ask that question. And maybe you don't ask it like that. Maybe you ask it like this. What is going to happen to me when I die? It's a question. And I would suggest that it's kind of the universal question. And if it is a universal question, and I think here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have the answer, or at least an answer that helps us with that. Because here in 1 Corinthians 15, we read about and learn about resurrection, which makes that all make sense. Now, there are two important things we need to consider before we move off of chapter 15. We've been on it for a couple of weeks. We started off talking about the first few verses and talking about that phrase of first importance. Paul said the gospel is the most important thing, so we spent some time on that. And then last week we looked at some various things that we could give thanks for as a result of this, uh, these truths about the resurrection. But there's two other things that I don't want to leave this chapter before we talk about. And one of them is this. Is it, does it matter? Is it important that we believe in the resurrection? That's the first thing. And the second is, what should we believe? about the resurrection. Today, I want to talk primarily about that first issue. Is it important whether I believe in the resurrection? We'll, we'll, Lord willing, next week we'll talk about the other or, 
or maybe in two weeks, because I think Brother Phil will be preaching next week. But uh, in a couple weeks, we'll talk about the, the other, and we'll talk about the mechanics. I've been talking about that for a few weeks. Uh, you know, what is the resurrection like? How does it work? What will our body be like when we're resurrected? That's yet to come. But today, does it matter? Does it matter whether I, as a Christian, believe in the resurrection? And let me answer that question just as simply as I possibly can. Yes, it absolutely matters whether or not we believe in the resurrection. One man said this. He said, fundamental to the gospel and the reality of our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is our confidence concerning the resurrection of the dead. Fundamental to the gospel. When I first read that quote, those are the four words that jumped out at me. Fundamental to the gospel. That is, in other words, he's saying it is a central tenet of that faith which we profess. Belief in the resurrection is key. It is central. It is core. It is vital to the Christian faith. And so I wonder this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Now, I've been doing this long enough now to know that if I were to say, how many of you believe that? And I ask you to raise your hands, almost every hand in place would go up. Because we know we're supposed to believe that, right? We know as Christians, we're supposed to believe in the resurrection. We understand that. But at the same time, there is a vast number of professors of Christ who struggle with things like this. Who say, well, wait a minute now. You know, I can, I can believe a lot of things, but what? Jesus actually bodily rose up and came out of the grave on them. That's impossible. That's not scientific. I can't get my brain around that. And so there's a lot of people who, even though they wouldn't want to admit it, deep down, have problems with this belief. And that must have been the case in Corinth, right? Because Paul is here hammering home the importance of believing in the resurrection. Because obviously somebody there was questioning this belief. If I read my Bible correctly, and obviously I think I am, if I read my Bible correctly, you can't be saved if you don't believe in the resurrection. Isn't that what it says? Romans chapter 10, verse number 9. Actually, verse number 8, I think, is where it starts. It says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Did you catch that? It's pretty clear. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You know, there's an awful lot of people in this world who believe Jesus was a good teacher. And he was a good teacher. He was the greatest teacher that has ever lived. But you know, it's interesting that Bible does, the Bible doesn't say there, if you believe in your hearts that he was a good teacher, you'll be saved. There's all kinds of people who believe Jesus was a good, even a godly man. But it doesn't say, if you believe in your hearts that he was a good and a godly man, you'll be Saved. Lots of people believe the historical truth that Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. It doesn't even say that. It doesn't say that if you believe that Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, you'll be saved. No, that's not what it says. It says if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All of those other things are important truths. All of those other things are things we ought to believe, but they're not the belief that saves. There's a difference. You know, there is a belief that is common to both saved and lost. You're aware of that, right? The Bible says that there's a form of belief that even the devils have, the demons have. James chapter 2 and verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So you sit back and you say to yourself, well, I believe in God, therefore I must be okay. No, that's not what it says. If you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you should be saved. The belief that separates the Christian from the non-Christian doesn't stop at simply believing there is a God. Or even that there was a man named Jesus. Or that he was a good teacher. Or that he was a person who went about healing the sick and 
doing great miracles or even that he was a person who died an ignominious death on a cross. No. None of that's enough. The belief that separates the Christian from the non-Christian is belief in the resurrection. And so, that's a pretty important doctrine, wouldn't you say? It's a pretty important belief. It's central. It's the one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other faith on the face of the earth. I am not aware of any other religion that claims, uh, that it claims to be based in the empty tomb of its founder. Only Christianity. So it's important. Now, in the portion of this passage that we already looked at, verses 1 through 11, Paul has already dealt with the fact of it, right? He's already said uh, the evidence surrounding it. He has reminded them that it is the central doctrine that was preached to them. If you look at verse number 11, it says, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. He says, This is what we taught as of first importance, the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the sightings of the Lord Jesus Christ by so many witnesses. And then he lists all of those different evidences for the resurrection in verses 5 through 8. Eyewitness testimony from Peter, the other disciples, 500 brethren seeing him at one time in one place. Even the eyewitness testimony he said of himself, he said, I saw him. All of that, he said, is evidence that it really did happen. But apparently, in spite of all that, in spite of all that, there was some in Corinth who were questioning the resurrection. And not just questioning it, they were actually teaching that there was no such thing as the resurrection. Look at verse number 12. Verse number 12 is this our text for today. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? You know, as I read that, I can just hear the incredulity in Paul's voice. Can you? It's like he's saying, I, I can't believe this. I cannot believe this. He has already, he has said to them, uh, uh, how is it possible that, that, that here's what to you was preached and, and, and here is what you believed and, and, and here, this is what the evidence conclusively demonstrated and yet now there's some of you who are teaching others that there is no resurrection. He's incredulous that it could be the case. And so he has to deal now with another false teaching and all throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's giving some reasons here why. This is not just a minor issue. This is central. This is vital. Reasons why Christianity without the resurrection is meaningless and useless and vain and empty. And so let's look at those. There are seven here. They're all very, very quick. It won't take very long. But I want you to notice seven different reasons why Christianity is meaningless apart from the resurrection. First of all, look at verse 14. He says in verse 14, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. The first thing Paul says here is, without the resurrection, the apostolic message is useless. The apostolic message was even false. He says, if the dead don't rise, Christ obviously did not rise. If Christ did not rise, then we must be liars, because we told you that he did Rise. He said, our message which we preach to you and which you believe is apparently empty and meaningless and vain and fearful and even false. And not only is that true of what we preached, he said, but it's also obviously true of what you believe. Not only did I tell a lie, but you believed a lie. Without the resurrection, you have nothing to believe in. Without the resurrection, your faith is empty and meaningless. 
He goes on, number two is in verse number 17. Verse number 17. Well, let's not skip verse 16. Let's read that. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. He says, without the resurrection, our faith is futile. And that's an interesting word. That word futile means empty or useless or vain or without meaning. He's saying, so your faith is meaningless. That what you believed in, meaningless. Kind of reiterates the last thing that he just said, but he's making it more personal. Your faith, meaningless, more practical. And it gets even more practical in the last part of verse number 17 when he says you are still in your sins. Without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness. Without the resurrection, our sins are unforgiven. Think about that for a minute. If there's no such thing as resurrection, you're still a sinner. If there's no such thing as resurrection, I'm still in my sins. And so are you. Paul says if all this stuff about the resurrection is a lie, all that good stuff we like to talk about, about forgiveness of sins, well, that's a lie too. It's all the same. You were a sinner. You're still a sinner. Most of us came to Christ because the weight of our sins led us there. Most of us came to Christ because we recognized the burden of our sin. The Holy Spirit got hold of our hearts and convicted us of the fact that we were a sinner, that we were lost, that we were undone, that we were on our way to hell. That's why most of us came. We came to the foot of the cross seeking forgiveness for sin. And it was only available because of the resurrection. Paul says, no resurrection, no forgiveness. Number four is in verse number 18. Verse number 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Without the resurrection, our Christian dead are lost. Our Christian dead are lost. Of course, the great hope of the believer is that that's not true, right? The great hope of the believer is the answer to Job's question. If a man dies, shall he live again? Obviously, the implied answer that we're looking for there is yes. He shall live again. That's our hope. I preached my grandmother's funeral a little over a year ago now, right? Been over a year ago. A year ago, Christmas maybe. You know, what would be the purpose of preaching funerals? What would be the purpose if there is no resurrection? If my grandmother lies moldering in the grave and that's all there was to her, what would be the purpose? What is the point of anything we talk about in Christianity? Without the resurrection, those who have died in Christ are dead. They are gone. They are rotting in the grave. The atheists are right. And death ends all. What? Is the point. That's what Paul is saying. Because without the resurrection, our Christian dead are lost. Verse number 5, verse number 19. I mean, number 5, in verse number 19, he says, Without the resurrection, we are without hope. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. Last week we used this verse to talk about the hope we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is what gives us that hope. But we, we twisted that verse a little bit last week and used it in a positive way. He's saying it in a negative way here, is he not? If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most pitiable. I, I don't think we get this verse in America. I think most of us don't really understand the import of what he's saying here. You know why? Because we haven't had to suffer much for our faith. All signs point to the fact that that's, that's changing. All signs point to the fact that persecution is something we can look forward to 
uh, with increasing rapidity in this country. And when that happens, I think we'll understand this verse better. Right now, I don't think we do. But the fact is, the audience Paul wrote to would have understood it perfectly. They suffered for their faith. And here's what Paul was saying. He's saying, considering the way that we as Christians have to live, considering that everybody in the world is against us, considering that the price we have to pay to be a Christian, if this life is all there is, what are we idiots? What are we morons? Why would we do this? If in this life only, if there wasn't something beyond. I was just reading the words of our Lord in my devotions just yesterday, and I came across Mark chapter 16. In Mark chapter 16, where the disciples said, what are, what's going to be the signs of your coming and of the end? And he gave them some various signs. You know, there's going to be earthquakes in diverse places. There's going to be uh, wars and rumors of wars and all that. But then this phrase jumped out at me. He said, and you will be hated of all men for my name's sake. Mark chapter 16, verse 13. You see Paul's argument here? He's saying, what's the point of this? He said, what in the world is the value of a lifestyle where we are hated of all men for the sake of Christ if there's not something beyond it? If it's only in this life, (laughs) we are fools. We are fools. Well, jump down a bit. Go to verse number 29 and we'll see the last two reasons that he gives why it's important that we believe in the resurrection. Verse number 29. Somebody tell me what verse 29 means. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Nobody wants to take a crack at that one? That's one of the most difficult to interpret verses in all of the Bible. But here's what I believe he's saying. He's saying without the resurrection, evangelism is a useless exercise. You know, according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary of the New Testament, over 200 possible interpretations have been put forth for what that verse means. Over 200 of uh, people trying to attempt. What, what did Paul mean when he's talking about being baptized for the dead? Those in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, take it absolutely literally. And they actually practice something called baptism for the dead. This is why the Mormons have the greatest genealogical records any place on the face of the earth. If you're interested in genealogy and you want to trace your ancestry, you're almost certainly going to be looking at LDS records because they have it. They have going back hundreds and hundreds of years and generation after generation after generation. Why? Because they go back through their ancestors and they look and they say, oh, here's an ancestor of mine who was not in the Mormon church. I will be baptized by proxy in this person's name and therefore they're in. That's baptism for the dead as they practice it. Literally someone has died perhaps hundreds of years before and they get baptized in their place and therefore, that person is in. Well, that interpretation is false. It's not true. And it cannot be what Paul meant here, because the fact is, if you don't make a decision for Christ yourself, there is nothing anybody else is ever going to do for you after you die that's going to have the slightest bit of impact. If you don't believe that, read Ezekiel chapter 18. Go home today and open up your Bible to the book of Ezekiel. Read chapter 18 and notice how many times God says, the soul that sins, it shall die. Notice that the whole purpose of that chapter is talking about the fact that there's nothing anybody else can do. You're not going to be judged for anybody else's sin and they're not going to be judged for yours. You stand before God for your own sin and your own sin alone. There's nothing that anybody else can do with it. Jesus told the story one time of a rich man and a poor man. He didn't give us the name of the rich man, but he told us the poor man's name was Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, if you'd like to read this sometime. 
Jesus said that Lazarus died. And being a believer, he went straight to heaven. What a beautiful picture that is. And what a reminder it is to us that when we die, we go straight to heaven. The rich man died, Jesus said, being a lost man. And he went straight to hell instantly. And if you read that story in Luke chapter 16, you'll see Jesus stated it so plainly. Once that man was in hell, there was nothing anybody could do for him. Nothing he could do for himself. Nothing anybody else could do. There is no baptism for the dead. There is no uh, praying people out of purgatory. There is nothing that can be done for somebody once that opportunity has passed. And so that cannot be. That cannot be. It's between you and God. Nobody else can by proxy make you right with God. And so you think and will better get it right while you still have time. Because it's all between you and him. Another interpretation I found of this particular passage centered on the fact that Paul used the word they there. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? In other words, this, this idea goes, Paul's not talking about us at all. He's not talking about Christians. He's talking about some other group of people. And so someone who has tr- trouble understanding what this verse means, he says, well, he's not talking about us. He's talking about something else. They. And that actually seemed to have some support, but I struggle with that one. I don't think that's right either. Because what's he talking about then? What difference does it make? Who cares what somebody else does? We're concerned about what we do. And so it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't seem to fit the context. Now, I think the simplest interpretation of this verse is simply this. Paul is saying, why do people continue to be baptized if there is no resurrection? Why do people continue to be baptized? In other words, why why do we continue to preach the gospel? Why do we continue to try to be evangelistic? Why do we continue to try to win souls? That little word for there, baptized for the dead, uh, could just as easily be translated in the place of. In the place of. Why are Christians baptized in the place of other Christians who have died? Why do we continue to win people? Christians live, Christians die, more Christians are added to the faith in their place. (laughs) What in the world is the point if there's no resurrection? Why are we winning people to Christ? Why evangelize? Let's turn this around for just a minute. Let's examine it from the opposite direction. Because if there is no resurrection, there's no reason to win souls. But if there is a resurrection, there's every reason to win souls. And I wonder sometimes why it is that some folks who name the name of Christ, who profess to be believers, seem to have not the slightest concern for the souls of their loved ones, the souls of those around them, the souls that they work with. And I wonder if... I'm stretching it too far to say here that maybe it is because they don't believe in the resurrection. Maybe they don't have that square in their mind, and that's why they don't have that concern for the loss. Because if we really believed in the resurrection, if we believe the saved are going to be resurrected to eternal glory and the lost to eternal damnation, it ought to cause us to want to win people to Christ. Well, one last one. Look at verse 30. Verse number 30. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In Paul's final argument here, he says, without the resurrection, suffering for Christ is nonsense. And he'd already touched upon that a little bit in, up earlier in the earlier verses, but now he's making it personal. Here's what he's saying. He said, why in the world would I go through what I go through? 
if there was no resurrection. You know, Paul went through a lot. Paul was beaten for his faith multiple times. Whipped, scourged, shipwrecked, imprisoned. Went through all kinds of difficulties and persecutions. He said, why in the world would I go through that if I did not believe? There was something beyond this life if I did not believe in the resurrection. As a matter of fact, the net of it all is, he's saying here, if, this, if there is no resurrection, then this life is all there is, and we might as well just live it up. We might as well just eat and drink and be merry, because it's all that matters. If there's no resurrection, there's no reason to live for anything but today. And as I read that, I thought, well, we ought to turn that one around, too. We ought to turn that one around. Why is it that so many people who name the name of Christ seem to live only for today? Why is it there are so many people who don't seem to have the slightest concern about the future and living for heaven? They're just worried about goofing off today. Why is that? And I think it might be again because they don't really believe in the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is not some intellectual exercise we're talking about this morning. This is a life-changing, soul-altering, everything-altering deal. If we believe in the resurrection, it's going to change us. It's going to change us forever. Everything about our Christian profession hinges on this. Here's what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, the resurrection of the human body is a future event that has compelling implications for our personal lives. If it is true, then, if it is not true, then we can forget about the future and live as we please. But it is true. Jesus is coming again. And so it ought to change us. It ought to change us. So, should we believe in the resurrection? Absolutely. Does it matter? Whether we believe in the resurrection? Absolutely. Paul says it very clearly. Christianity without it is useless. It's futile. I think he's even saying here, it's a joke without it. It's a joke. I just finished a biography of the Apostle Paul, written by a fellow named John Pollock. And it was, it was a very interesting biography, especially both the beginning of the life of Paul the way he described his salvation experience was wonderful. And at the end, as he's describing him before kings, and especially the end of his life, the things that we don't see so much in the Bible. But as I got to the part where Paul stood before Felix, the governor, and he described that scene, and he built it up, and you, you could just see in your mind's eye Paul standing there and saying to Felix, this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And I can just see in my mind's eyes, I read that Paul saying that. I have hope in God that there shall be a resurrection of the dead. And then as he stood before King Agrippa and said, why should it be thought a thing incredible to you that God would raise the dead? And as I read that, I thought, why indeed? It's such a central, key, core belief to Christianity. Without it, there is no Christianity. Why would we not believe in it? And so I ask again this morning, do you believe it? Do you believe it? The resurrection. Songwriters of the Lord is risen indeed. Are the tidings true? Yes, we beheld the Savior bleed and saw him living too. The Lord is risen indeed. Then justice asks no more. Mercy and truth are now agreed who stood opposed before. The Lord is risen indeed. Then is his work performed. The captive surely now is freed. 
and death our foe disarmed. The Lord is risen indeed. Hell has lost his prey. With him is risen the ransomed sea to reign in endless day. Do you believe it this morning? Do you believe in the resurrection? I, I say unto you, based on the authority of this book, that if you don't, you need to spend some time this morning examining your heart. You need to spend some time this morning examining your faith. Because if I'm believing this right, reading this right, and I, I think I am, you can believe everything else about Christ and still die and go to hell. You need to believe in the resurrection. Because belief in the resurrected Savior is what separates the saved from the lost. Do you believe it? Paul said to the Corinthians, incredulously, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How indeed?